All right, well, we are continuing our study in the book of Revelation, and a couple weeks ago we finished the vision that was given to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, and at the end of the chapter, it transitions then to the series of letters, very famously known Uh, the seven letters to the seven churches of the province of Asia. And over the coming months, we're going to work our way through these letters, and there's a lot to consider here. And uh, today, we're just going to get a little bit into the letter uh, to the church of Ephesus. Uh, the, the, The sermon title that we'll use for today is A Letter to a Loveless Church. Letter to a loveless church, as we will see, this is a, a church of remarkable accomplishments, a church of a remarkable legacy, and yet Christ had something against this church, and what he describes, what he states in this letter is so very important for us uh, to learn as well today. In fact, as I study these letters, I think if there is a letter that could possibly be most apropos to us. It could be uh, this very letter uh, to us as a church with a very, very rich legacy and with many, many accomplishments, and yet the constant challenge, as we will see, of, of forgetting the first love. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and I want to begin by reading the letter Verses 1 to 7, here John records the words of Jesus as follows. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place Unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, as we go through this letter, what we're going to notice is is that the structure of this letter is going to be paralleled in in all of the letters. In fact, what we're going to see is there's a beautiful symmetry to all the seven letters as as Jesus dictates this to John and, and gives this same structural approach to each church. There's only minor uh, variations as we go through this structure. But as we're going to see it, first of all, in this letter, we're, we're going to see seven elements that are contained in this letter and echoed in the letters to come. First of all, in every letter, as there is, there is the press to the particular messenger of a particular church in a particular city. Secondly, there is the assessor. The one who does the assessment describes himself, that is, the glorious Christ will refer back to the vision that he gave John in chapter 1 and use specific characterizations or descriptions that were given there and use them for a very specific reason in each of the letters. Then there is thirdly an approval that is given in most of these letters. Not all, but most of them have a a list or a description of that which Christ finds praiseworthy in each of the churches. And we're going to find this in the letter to the, uh, the Ephesians in verses 2 to 3, and then again in verse 6. Fourthly, we find an accusation. And we find this in verse 4, 
We find this in most of the letters except two. There is in each of these letters uh, an accusation, uh, a description of that which was lacking in the church. And the description, this accusation is always very serious in nature. Then fifth, we find an admonition. In light of the assessment that's given, in light of that assessment, there is, with the exception of two, there is a, an admonition in light of their failures. And we find that here as well in the letter to the Ephesians, verse 5, the admonition of, of, about what the church is to do in response to the assessment. And then sixthly, there is an appeal At the end of each letter, there is an appeal that is made, an appeal that actually extends beyond the the borders or the walls of the church to extend to everyone who reads the letter. It's a universal appeal that indicates for us that even though these letters are specific churches, the contents of them are to be considered, they're to be studied, and they're to be applied in every church. And we find that in this letter, in the first half of verse 7, and then finally we find the assurance that is given as Christ gives a promise to those who will study, who will read, and who will obey the things that he delivers in these letters. The address, the assessor, the approval, the accusation, the admonition, the appeal, and the assurance. Now, before we get into this particular letter, it does help us to consider the background because for all of these letters, there are very distinct uh, connections to the surrounding culture that, that we have to understand in order to be able to make better sense of what's contained here and also make in, in response, make proper application. In terms of geographically, if we could put it that way, we, we've considered already that John was on the island of Patmos when he receives the vision and receives all the contents of the book of Revelation. And the representatives who are described in verse 16, the seven stars in his hand, in verse 20, the seven stars are the, the angels... And we, just this last time when, when we were in chapter 1, these angels are, uh, the, the term it refers to specific messengers probably sent by each of these seven churches to John on the island of Patmos. It's very important to remember that when the Romans would, would incarcerate criminals or those who had been accused of some kind of crime, for those incarcerated. the incarcerated had to rely upon the charity of those in the area uh, or family and friends who would send regular supplies to those who were incarcerated. Now, we studied the, this, this detail that John was exiled to the island of Patmos Because of his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there were communities on the island, but he would be particularly reliant upon believers who would come and visit him and provide for his needs, just as Paul was when he was under arrest in Rome. And the best understanding here is to to consider that these seven churches had all gotten together and sent John on Patmos a love offering, a, a care package, and these seven messengers were the ones responsible to bring it to John. And in return, John receives the revelation and then sends it on with them. They would have gotten on the boat in the port uh, there in, in Patmos and sailed 65 miles to the port of Ephesus. And then beginning in Ephesus, these this group of seven would stop in at each church and read the entire book of Revelation in the church. They would do that and then carry on. The, 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 the next six would then carry on to the next city, Smyrna, and the messenger from that church would read the whole book of Revelation to the congregation, and then the, the next five would continue Likely, the book was even copied in each congregation to, to, so that a copy would remain with the church and the until it made its way all the way to Laodicea. The messengers followed the, the highway system, if you could call it that, the Roman roads. 
They, they followed them along the coast up to Pergamum and then through the valleys until they finally reached Laodicea following what was known in that day as a postal route. Now, as they did, they would read these, the, the book in every congregation and every letter, as we see, will have particular details that are very closely connected to the specific circumstances of each church. One commentator puts it this way, the prophecy of revelation arises out of local and contemporary circumstances. It is, in the first instance at least, the answer of the Spirit to the fears and perils of the Asian Christians towards the end of the first century. This would be the period of of the end of, of the first century. John is writing around 80, 95 right before the death of Domitian, he, where he, when he was still exiled on the island, Domitian died back to the mainland. But as he, he writes, the, he's, he is given these letters in order to deal with specific challenges faced by each of these churches. And as we consider that contextual background, there are two important issues that must be kept in mind as we go through these letters, two overriding, varying levels of influence in each of the letters. And, and here are those two issues. First of all, the challenges presented to the churches by the state. Now, this is very important to consider, and it's going to be the overriding issue for all of these. The, the churches in all of these seven cities were, were dealing with significant opposition, hostility, and even persecution that was being doled out by the government, by the state. And then secondly, to a lesser degree, but nonetheless still influential, was the ongoing problem that was created by the Jews. And we'll get into each of those in in brief here so that we can understand a little better how this will play into our understanding of the letters. Let's look first at the challenge that was presented by It is centered on something that we call the imperial cult, the worship that was demanded by the emperor that was freely given by the citizenry, and it was incorporated into all aspects of civic life. We talk in our context about the separation of church and state, and of course there's always ambiguity with that. It never turns out to be what we think it is. But in that day in particular, particular, there was no separation between the state and religion. Those two things were intricately combined. You could not even separate those things. The emperor demanded worship, and the people freely gave it. It was just what the people did. It was what it meant to be a, a citizen, a patriot. You would give the honor due that the emperor required. And this imperial cult came to have wonderful harmony with all the other religious activities that were centered on the other uh, gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman pantheon. Now, in the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, in the time of the context of these seven churches of which we read here in Revelation, the emperor who was ruling was Titus Flavius Domitianus, whom we know as Domitian. And he ruled from 81 to 96. He dies in 96, and according to church history, it is at that point when Domitian dies that John is able to come back to Ephesus from Patmos. Now, Domitian was one of the, the emperors who... Uh, who, who, who strongly demanded that he be worshipped. Emperors before him had as well, but he brought it to a brand new level. Suetonius, a, a Roman who wrote on the lives, said this about Domitian, and it helps us understand, first of all, why John was on Patmos because of his preaching, and it helps us understand the difficulties, the, the challenges that the churches in these these cities face. Suetonius says this about Domitian, quote, with equal arrogance, when he dictated the folder to be used by his procurators, he began it thus, 
Our Lord and God commands so-and-so, speaking of himself, whence it became a rule that no one should style him otherwise, either in writing or speaking, end quote. In other words, what Suetonius says is that Domitian brings it to a, a new level where he begins all of his decrees, all of his laws, all of his utterances with the formula our Lord and God commands so-and-so. And, and then Domitian required that all of those who would repeat the words of the edict, all the, the messengers, the herald, would have to ascribe to Domitian. Now, it's well known that in that time, even emperors before Domitian claimed divine titles for themselves. And when you go through the the Greco-Roman world, you see this in a lot of the inscriptions. You will see them ascribing deity to themselves. They claim the title of God. They claim the title the Son of God. They claim the title Lord. They claim the title Creator. And they claim the title Savior. And to us, to think of a king or a president who would make such claims, we, we think it's utterly ridiculous. How could anybody ever believe that? And yet in that day, they did. The, the populace generally believed that the emperors were divine. A marble pedestal found in the city of Pergamum, to which Christ also sends a letter, displays this, this in honor of Caesar Augustus. So when, when we get to the letter of Pergamum, we'll, letter to Pergamum, we'll talk about this in more detail but Caesar Augustus, uh, who reigned from 27 BC to, to AD 14, so, so he had already reigned and died, but the inscription was in the temple already that existed at the time that the letter is written to the Pergamum believers. There was this inscription there that said this, the emperor Caesar, son of a god, the god Augustus of every land and see the overseer. That is how they venerated Caesar Augustus. There's an inscription in a city called Magnesia, which is about 15 miles away from Ephesus, that describes Nero this way. Now, Nero ruled prior to the time of the book of Revelation, so this inscription was, was already there and familiar to people by the time the book of Revelation is written. And Nero is described this way, the son of the greatest of the gods, Tiberius Asterius. This imperial propaganda was etched into inscriptions throughout the streets. You would go down the streets in these different cities and it would be in inscriptions, it would be in special, uh, uh, special votive um, inscriptions at temples, it would be at milestone markers, all kinds of different places where there would be information etched, kind of like our highway signs. And there you would have these, these inscriptions that would deify the emperors. It was also minted on coins. So the very money that you would use would ascribe deity to the emperors. It was also recited at all the civic events. So remember, with civic events, events in the populace, festivals, some kind of sporting event, you would go and there would be recitations. And in those recitations, the emperors would be worshipped as divine. In fact, again, coming back to Domitian, there, is, uh, there, there was a temple in John's day that had been built just a few years prior to the writing of the book of Revelation, a, a temple that was built by Domitian there in Ephesus. And, and this is what one writer says about that temple and Domitian. He says, that emperor, that is Domitian, enforced his worship with a rigor hitherto unknown and a pretentious temple to was actually established in Ephesus. Now, today there are just remains that are left. You can still see some of the foundation, but this temple was an, an, a very, very significant structure. It was built by arch 
uh, Arch Technology, two stories for a massive platforms with all kinds of shops. It's kind of like a, a, you could think of it as a mall, really, an indoor mall that was a function to this Temple Mount. And then you would go up, and on the top platform, there was a massive statue of Domitian, seven meters tall. And you can see the remains of that in the picture on the slide here. All we have left is just a picture of his head and of his arm signifying strength. There was a seven-meter statue there. There was an altar in the front, and then a second temple that was constructed that was 50 by 100 yards in size. It had 13 columns of, uh, along the side and eight columns along the front. It, it was a remarkable building, all of it built by Domitian himself, built to... Uh, to create that, that, that worship opportunity for the residents of Ephesus. And just think of this. This was built after Paul's time, but it was built during John's time. I'll get to that in just a moment. But every time then that John would walk from upper Ephesus down to lower Ephesus on the main street, he would pass by this temple to Domitian, the emperor who ruled during his time. As I said, the imperial cult functioned in harmony with the worship of the other gods and goddesses. These weren't pitted against one another. Instead, they would be meshed together with all kinds of temples everywhere. And and you would have preferences that the people might choose this temple over that, but they would acknowledge the deity and worship of the emperors along with the gods. And of course, as we know, to which Christ first writes or or sends a letter through John, there was the worship of the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. And Ephesus was acclaimed as the city in the entire Roman Empire that had the status of a guardian city. A guardian city with the protection and the promotion of the worship of Artemis. There is a even a reference to this in Acts chapter 19, uh, verse 35. We'll we'll read that in just a moment. But Luke records uh, a a riot that happened because of Paul's preaching there. The temple of Artemis was already established way long before Paul. And so it was there, and and Paul preached. There's impact that's, that's made from the preaching, and the silversmiths, the idol workers, they get upset. The whole riot breaks out, and... And uh, you have one of the leaders say that Ephesus is the guardian of Artemis. The temple that was built there and dedicated to Artemis before Paul's time, still standing in John's time, one of the world. It was much bigger than the temple to Domitian. It measured 220 feet by 425 feet. That's one building, one building making it one of the largest buildings ever built in the empire. It was the largest religious building in all the Roman Empire. It was four times the size of the uh, Parthenon that sits on the Acropolis there in Athens. You may have seen pictures of that. This temple to Artemis was decorated with 127 columns, each of which measured six feet in diameter, think of that, and 60 feet tall, and 36 of them had life-sized figures carved into the bases of those, those columns. Here is an artist's rendition of that temple um, with a kind of a cross-section taken out, but in the the middle of that, in the considered to be the holy place in that temple, was this massive gold statue of Artemis. They had smaller ones that they would parade through the city on different processionals. And there's one that they've found that's about eight feet tall. And she's covered with what is probably bee eggs, signifying fertility. And this was the normal uh, kind of life that you would encounter there, walking through the streets in Ephesus, seeing people on their way to the temple, seeing these processionals as this 
ugly thing is paraded through the streets and bowing down, worshiping, following, making sacrifices to her and engaging in all kinds of other activities, some of which will we will describe a little later as we get into the details of these letters. That was one of the challenges, the imperial cult. And, and you also had the, other, the, the worship of the other gods and goddesses. This was very much the center of life for people in that day. And then, of course, you have this group called Christians who would say there is one Lord and his name is Jesus can understand the problems, as we're going to see, even in the letter to the Ephesians, the problems that that creates. Now, there was a second issue that, that the churches had to deal with, and that was the problem that came from the Jews, particularly their hostility and the subversion that they launched against the churches. In exchange for paying a special tax... Jews were exempt from the laws and the expectations that they would have to worship at Artemis' temple or worship at Domitian's temple. They were not required to recite that Caesar is Lord. They were given exception due to their long history and monotheism. The Jews were provided exceptions, provided that they pay a pretty significant tax. Now, up until Paul's ministry, the Roman authorities viewed Christians as basically an outgrowth of Judaism. And therefore, the churches, for many, for many decades, enjoyed the same exceptions as the Jews. They were not required or expected to go through all the practices, the rituals that the pagan, their pagan countrymen would go through. Now, of course... Jews didn't like an example of this is actually in Acts chapter 18. Let me read it. It gives you an example of how in Paul's ministry, about 40 years before the writing of Revelation, it was 80, 50, well, around 80, 52, where an incident occurs in the city of Corinth. And Luke describes how one of the Roman proconsuls, the Roman governors, in the church. It's Acts 18. Verses 12 to 15, Luke records this. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's in modern-day Greece, and Corinth particularly, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, before the bema, before the governor's seat of judgment, saying, this was accusation against Paul, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, what was very interesting with that accusation from the Jews is that they themselves were exempt from worshiping Caesar, worshiping the the gods and goddesses, and they wanted to disassociate with Paul to remove Paul from the protections provided by Judaism. And so they try to disassociate him. And notice, they say, because Paul is not one of us, he must abide by the laws to worship Domitian, or at this point, worship Nero. He, he must abide by the law to, to worship the gods and goddesses of our city. But Luke goes, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or of a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put, it, put, to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to judge these matters. Luke indicates that at that point still in the Roman governing apparatus, the church was just considered to be under the same exceptions as the Jewish people, given their own freedoms. You guys deal with it yourselves. And of course, the Jews hated that. They did not want the Christians to enjoy those protections. They would rather have the Christians be under the laws of the land so that they would have to blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ. By the time that John records the book of Revelation, however, things had changed considerably. 
And by this time, the Roman government was realizing that this Christian movement were followed of this Christ, whose name is Jesus, were not part of the, the exceptions that were afforded to the Jews. There's also the reality or the, 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 the fact that the Jews not only wanted to disassociate with the Christians and have them come under the expectation of the laws, but they also tried to subvert by sending in influences, the Judaizers, we call them, those who would go into the churches to try to win back Jewish converts to Jesus and the God-fearing converts to Jesus, to win them back to the synagogue and to corrupt the teaching of the church. Those Judaizing influences sought to reinstate the Mosaic law. Jews had a huge problem with the idea that the claim could be made that Yahweh, the God of Moses, the, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of David, that he would accept Gentiles on the basis of grace. The Jews were fundamentally against that doctrine and so sought to subvert the churches with all kinds of, of syncretism to, to, to legal practices to reinstitution of the Mosaic law. So you can understand how difficult it would be to live in that day. One writer summarizes it it very well. Think of this. If we were back in that time, or think of it if it was today, here are the... He writes this. The Christian was faced with a cruel dilemma. His safety was assured only by preparedness in the time of need, to identify himself either with pagan society by sacrifice to the emperor and to the expected participation in those aspects of the guilds, the unions, and and social life, and that is something that we'll see that the Nicolaitans do, or with Judaism on whatever terms would gain the Christian acceptance is probably implicit denial of his Lord, that is Jesus. So that were your only two options. If you wanted to live in that day a safe life, to pursue happiness, the only two logical options would be either to somehow associate with the pagans and go along with their their cultural things and just kind of go through the motions at the temples and in your your union meetings and, and the festivals. Either do that or try to associate with the local synagogue to come under the umbrella, just pay the tax, and not have to go through the religious activities, but the Jews would require you to denounce that Jesus was Lord. If you would not do those two things, you were in danger. And your life could very well be taken. We will read in these letters of martyrs, that began to lose their life around this time for the sake of their their confession that Jesus is Lord. Now, in light of that, let's get into this letter and look at a few of the components of it before we leave for today and, and, and pick this up in the future. First of all, the address. The address begins in the first part of this letter, with the address that reads, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Ephesus was the prosperous and influential city in the province of Asia. It wasn't the capital city, but it was the most most influential city. We remember from Luke's history in the book of Acts that Paul really wanted to get to, to Ephesus in his day, going back to the middle of the first century, he wanted to get there on his second missionary journey until the very end when he's on his way from Corinth back to Jerusalem and makes a brief stop in Ephesus. And he says to the Ephesians, particularly the Jewish residents to whom he had preached a couple of messages, he says to them, and this would have been AD 52, he says to them, I will return to you again if God wills. Well, God did will. And so Paul spent three full years in Ephesus, one of the longest spans of time that he spends anywhere in ministry. 
and he plants a significant church in Ephesus that we read in Acts 19 is able to influence the entire province. Paul is able to train men for ministry in, a, in the earliest seminary and go out and plant churches as far away as Colossae and Laodicea and probably these other churches that we read of in Revelation were planted due to Paul's training of evangelists there in Ephesus. Ephesus then soon became one of the great centers of early Christianity. And it's important to consider all the, the names associated with Ephesus. We know Priscilla and Aquila served in Ephesus. The great preacher, the Charles Spurgeon, you could say, of the first century, Apollos, he ministered in Ephesus. There is a very close friend to Paul whose name was Tychicus. He was sent to minister in Ephesus. Of course, we know that Paul commissioned Timothy to take up residency there in Ephesus and serve as an apostolic delegate for several years. He was there at least three years. And then something that's often forgotten is that the apostle John spends even more time than Paul in the city of Ephesus. Paul is martyred around the year AD 67. And John, the apostle, moves from Jerusalem. As war breaks out there, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in AD 70, the temple destroyed. But by that time, John, according to church history, has moved to Ephesus. And John will now spend the rest of his life until about AD 98. He'll spend about almost three decades in Ephesus, ministering in Ephesus and sending out missionaries from that city. to consider this. Think of all the works of the New Testament that are associated with Ephesus. These are the books that were written from Ephesus. 1 Corinthians. John wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, likely from Ephesus. And then consider all the letters written to Ephesus. The letter to the Ephesians. And then 1st and 2nd Timothy. And then the book of Revelation itself were also written to Ephesus. It really was a remarkable place. And as we're going to get into this letter more, we're going to see that this church, out of all the churches, had the greatest of accomplishments. There was no church that could boast of the great accomplishments and legacy that the church in Ephesus could boast about. One writer puts it well when he says this, nowhere does the word of the gospel seem to have found a kindlier soil to have struck root more deeply or to have borne fairer fruits of faith and love than Ephesus. Church, so much was given, so much would be required. We're going to see that as we continue. Let's look now, secondly, at the assessor. The one who does the assessment of this church, and this is so important, particularly as it relates to this letter. Jesus is the assessor. We know that the glorious Christ is the one who gives the assessment, and he describes himself in the second part of verse 2. Notice how he describes himself to this church. He says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Now, what Jesus does here is the vision that John recorded back in chapter 1 and describes himself by a couple of those characteristics that were given in that vision. And the language may seem exactly identical, but what's fascinating to know here is that Jesus makes two slight changes in these descriptions. Let's look at the first. The first one is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, this goes back to 1 verse 16. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 16, you read this. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining strength. So in 1 verse 16, John sees that Jesus holds or has 
seven stars in his hand. And we know from verse 20 of chapter 1 that these seven stars are the angels, which we define as the specific messengers. But the alteration comes in this. In verse 16, we would translate the text literally as reading, in his right hand, he had seven stars. It merely indicates possession. They were there in his right hand. But when we come to verse 1 of chapter 2, a a verb is changed. It, It changes from merely expressing possession to a verb that is much stronger and emphasizes power and control. You could translate it this way, the one who holds or the one who controls the stars in his right hand. The verb emphasizes power and control. In other words, what Jesus is emphasizing as he writes to this church, the church in Ephesus, the church that had such a legacy, Jesus emphasizes, I am, in the, I am the one who is in control. I am the one who has the sovereignty. Don't be concerned about Domitian with that statue, with that powerful arm, seven meters up in the air with a clenched fist. I am the one who holds the seven stars. I control them. They are under my power. Secondly, another slight variation happens here when he describes himself as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, we saw back in the vision of chapter 1 that the lampstands represent the churches. There, in verse 13, we read this. John says, And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Back in chapter 1, Jesus is described as, as standing in the middle. He is located in the middle of the seven lampstands. You could think of them as as him, and he describes himself to the Ephesian church. The verb walking is added. Verb walking is added. Why does he add that? What does it communicate? The idea is, is that Jesus is not merely standing there, stationary, merely in the midst of, but the picture is of one who is moving about. The idea is one he is in the presence of. He is not disassociated with. He is not far from, but he is walking around. He is examining. He is seeing everything that takes place. He is not farther away from one church than the other. He is walking about in their midst. He is observing what is taking place. He is the one who is able to give the ultimate assessment. And when we look at this, we are brought to this important realization. This is what the Ephesian church needed to realize. And as we see in each of these letters, there is an appeal that is made to all churches that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here's what we can take from this at the very start of this letter to the Ephesians. That Christ is sovereign over his churches, and Christ is present within his churches. Now, sometimes we can pit those things against each other, that sovereignty and transcendence mean distance, or insensitivity, or a lack of intimate knowledge. We, we kind of think of the, 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 the state of the people. The president, he doesn't know what it's like to go and buy groceries, right? That's, that's how we look at it in our day. But here's a picture of Christ who is transcendent, high and lifted up, in absolute control, with nothing outside of his power, and yet he is intimately aware, he is involved, he is in the midst of. And that is both a conviction and a comfort. It's a conviction 
because he sees everything. He sees everything. He knows everything. He knows it better than we do. He knows the state of the churches better than we do. He knows the state of our church better than we ever could. He is in the midst of, and he is walking and he is observing. He is not disassociated and unconcerned. And he is also sovereign. He is the one who is in control. And this is important, especially as we go further into this letter, that when we, we think the, the culture is against us and, and we start to feel the, the pressure, and we have even close to what the Ephesian church would have felt in the context of their day, we can kind of think that the most important thing is that Christ would do his work of judgment in the culture. But that's where he's needed. And we can preach that way. And we can think the biggest need is out there. But as we're going to see in all of these letters, time and again, that the admonition, the exhortation, comes not about the culture. It comes to the church. Christ is concerned for the state of his church. And that we ought not to be distracted and and carried away by all kinds of conspiracies about what's happening, all kinds of threats to our civil liberties, what might happen in the next and beyond, and, and spend all of our time consumed with that instead, as these letters show us, that Christ wants us to look at our own house. He wants us focused on our state, not on the state of the culture or the government. Just a brief introduction to our next point, and with this much more next time. Let me just say a few words about the third element in the letter, the approval. The approval. It is a remarkable list that Christ gives to this church, the longest that you'll find uh, of various attributes or qualities that Christ commands in the church. It's found in verses 2 and 3 and 6, and this is what Christ states. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And then he goes on. In the middle of that, giving a very strong rebuke, he says, this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the next time we get into this letter, we're going to go through all of those and describe them, but there's just a few issues that we can look at already before. First of all, consistent with that description which Christ has just made, that he holds the stars, the messengers, in his hands or in his right hand, and that he walks among the churches, it is only natural that he would say this at the beginning of this, this section of the letter. He says, I know. I know. I know. He's going to repeat this statement in all seven letters. I know. 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 He tells every church he knows. He is not ignorant or distant. He knows. And that verb is important. There are several verbs for knowing in the Greek language. And this one emphasizes complete knowledge. It's not a, I am learning or I am finding out about Instead, it is complete knowledge, knowledge, an absolute clearness. One, one commentator says, an absolute clearness of mental vision, which photographs all facts of life as they pass. It's the idea that he knows every element, every detail. And he begins with this approval by going through a list. We're going to look at seven affirmations. And at the next Seven affirmations, seven praiseworthy characteristics. And these are good things that we must strive to fulfill in our own lives and imitate. They're exemplary. Now, these seven things, very quickly, I can summarize this way. There is a fulfillment of the one another's. There is an intolerance of evildoers. 
There is an examination of teachers. There is a rejection of falsehood. There is an endurance through opposition. There is a refusal to give up. And there is a hatred of cultural compromise. Now that is kind of like the resume of the kind of church that you want to be part of, isn't it? And we're going to go through all of those and we're going to see that these are things that we must replicate in our own lives. And yet, as we will see next time as well, it's not the entire what ought to be in a church. And it's going to be important for us to recognize that. Well, with that, let's close our time in prayer. And especially as the calendar changes and we look to a new year, it's a great time to do as, as what the churches themselves would do when they received these letters, is self-examination and consider how we are to number our days so that we may present a heart of wisdom to the Lord of the churches. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the book of Revelation. We are thankful for the rich doctrine and practical instruction that indeed we have already tasted even just briefly of the promise that blessed is he who reads and keeps the words of this book. We pray that as we continue our study, that as we examine these churches, that the details that we read in them would, would not fall by the wayside, but that they would find a ready, receptive ear and a a heart ready to obey, especially as we turn the calendar this year and think to the year ahead. We pray for clarity, insight, help us in the process of self-examination, and give us the grace and the strength we need to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in a way that Uh, We've never done before in our lives in this coming year, knowing all along that it is you who wills and works that salvation out in our lives. We thank you for that wonderful reality, and we pray for an abundant year ahead of spiritual blessing. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.